I'm Rob North from the Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades podcast. On behalf of the team, I'd like to take a little time before we get into the subject matter of today's episode to come before you in the spirit of contrition. On our show, we work very hard to bring you unique stories about interesting characters and events using reputable and high-quality source materials and to provide laughter and learning. However, we are only human and subject to errors in judgment. And there has been an error that we have made, and in doing so, we have not only disappointed you, the fans, we have failed you. This joke better be good. We're already 45 seconds in. We've also disappointed ourselves. <laughs> in our previous episode, when we examined part one of a two-part series on the crimes and events of the Norwegian black metal scene, we covered the tragic story of Per Ingve Olin, better known by his stage super K, Dead. Given his story and its location and his stage name, we've made a grievous error. Because at no point did any one of the four of us make the joke, he's not dead, he's pining for the fjords. Over our time together, I know that you, the fans who have supported us for so long, have come to, have come to expect better out of us. And you deserve better. And this is why, following today's episode recording, we will be taking some time off so that we can work on ourselves to be better for you, the fans. And also so Kyle can get treatment for his crippling addiction to boofing ecstasy. This isn't what we wanted. God damn it! This isn't what we wanted when we started on this journey, but it's what has to be done because it's not just for us that we do it; it's for you. Thank you, and God bless. Whenever you introduced yourself, I was like, "Ah, shit! This is it. This is the intervention." (laughs) (laughs) Are we getting canceled? I tell you what, Padre. There's a whole bunch of people in here that really care about you. They really just love the heck out of you, Padre. I'm I'm just trying to. (laughs) No, but we seriously do have to do something about Kyle's penchant for boofing ecstasy. I'm I'm just. I'm I'm wondering. (laughs) I'm wondering. Did you copy that text from Jeffrey Tubin, Louis C.K. Or um, Matt Lauer. I think it's just the same one over and over. Yeah, yeah. 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 Rip- At this point, it's just boilerplate. Right. <laughs> My GI yeah, you just go so on Google mad- Books. It's on there. My system's so messed up, I don't know if boofing would actually work. <laughs> <laughs> it would just come flying out. Like, what the <laughs> hell? <laughs> so I only one way to find out, Big Phil. I mean, for next episode, let's get here's, some. Uh, here's, I remember whenever people were asking, like, "Oh, you're really gonna get that vaccine?" Like, dude, I used to take pills off the ground and hope I got high. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, if, what if? What if? This looks was, like it might fuck me up. <laughs> oh, the beers in my nose. Well, well, here, here's the question: What if it's actually a cure for Crohn's? And he figures it out. He'll be unstoppable. And then all of a sudden, well, how'd you figure that out? Well, See, one day, <laughs> what, what happened was, <laughs> I, it, yeah, uh, it was Dr. Oz. Yeah. Well, so what What actually happened in this Senator. case was... I slipped, I fell was, on it. I was speaking to... <laughs> one in a million, doctors. One in a million, million, million. Hungrily over and over again. <laughs> so, so what happened in this case was, I was talking to my parents about the subject of the last episode recording, Norwegian Black Metal Part 1, and I was telling them about mayhem, and I was telling them about dead, and my dad just goes... Well, he's Norwegian. He's not dead. He's pining for the fjords. And I just went, God damn it. We Son missed that joke. Son of a bitch. Son of a bitch. We walked right by it. <laughs> it was. And we didn't do right that. There. No Swedish chef impersonation. Hat tri- had tip to yeah. the burn. We, 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 we messed it up. We're going to have to go back and do part one all over again. I thought I did my Swedish chef. Or did I do that before? You might have done that before. I can't I remember if you actually Son did it. Son of a bitch. Episode. Anyway, so we're, we're going to try to 
to be better for all of you, like I said. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I am the Padre, Michael Arnett. And I am Kyle Graper. Renowned ecstasy addict, Kyle Graper. (laughs) (laughs) We love it at the bar. (laughs) Isolate that audio. I want to know... like does does any of and this will this is I mean actually for our, our younger listeners, if you don't know what boofing is before you Google it, just like email me or something. Yeah, just uh, just I want to know. I'm trying and then just like how old you are. Yeah, just trrpod at gmail.com. I I need to know because like We're gonna I, save you a I lot brought of this up at work on more than one occasion and like the like everybody under like 25 has yeah. no idea what I'm talking about. Just nothing, huh? And, like, if I you don't know, like, Google it, because it's super funny. What are they teaching these kids these days? Well, Mike, you're Gen X. You're the generation that came up with this. So everything's no, just got fentanyl actually, in it actually, we were... Well, it was later Gen X. Later Gen X. Mm. I, I'm a mid to early Gen Xer. Okay. You doth protest too much. So. No, I never said I didn't take things up the butt. So you didn't invent it. I just we said that just... we didn't invent it. Kyle, we've been to Florida. <laughs> I lived in Florida for two years. Okay, well, I mean, that's all one, you need. It's one way to avoid the Spirit Airlines baggage it, fees. In right. a sailor suit. <laughs> it's, it's just what happens. So today, as I said, we are exper- uh, experiencing... Ooh, okay, experiencing, I guess. We are... Uh, Exploring part two of our series on Norwegian black metal. In part one of our series, we examine the rise and coalescing of a truly unique music scene, a brand of extreme metal characterized by an overt worship of a truly medieval version of Satan, the embracing of ancient Norse mythos, a rejection of all that was considered to be good about society, and a desire to constantly one-up each other in the extremity of their actions, both on stage and off. Their anti-social rhetoric was taking a turn for the truly objectionable, gathering tones of racism, sexism, homophobia, and a call for violence and destruction on those who sought to impose their vision of a polite, functional, Judeo-Christian society. Characters like Euronymous, Dead, and Varg Vikernes had caused the birth of a zero-sum game that had finally led to the burning of an ancient treasured church, and this overt act of vandalism would be the beginning of a wave of crime that would shock the world of music and the world at large. Now the point of no return had been reached, and it wouldn't be stopped until the bodies piled up. So we want to examine our sources before we go on in the episode, as we always do. Of course, we have our primary source, the excellent book, Lords of Chaos, by Michael Moynihan and Diedrich Söderlund. I also have been doing some exploring in the book Satan's Kinder, a German language book by Frank Nordhausen and Leon Billerbeck, that examines a lot of the events that kind of followed up the Norwegian black metal scene, particularly with young people. Uh, I also have enjoyed the 2009 documentary film Until the Light Takes Us, which, again, I can't recommend highly enough. I think it's a fantastic documentary. I also found a 1999 Norwegian-language documentary called Satan Ria Media, or Satan Rides the Media, which is about the black metal crimes and how the journalism surrounded surrounding these events back in the early 1990s helped spread the word about the crimes, but also probably didn't help the situation. Uh, anything else source-wise, gentlemen? Of course, we have the uh, the film right. for Lords yep. of Chaos. Anything uh, differing from last I mean, time? I listened to a few podcasts. There's not a whole lot out there that's not either Dutch or, or Norwegian, and what they do is they go over Basically, they use your source material. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I mean, but it's... They, they, there's information out there. A lot of competing stories. Yep. 
Uh, also, as we mentioned in the first episode, since this series is the story of a music scene, we've included a playlist to go along with the podcast episode, so you can go and hear some of the music we've been talking about and some of the bands whose stories are part of this whole thing. So you can go on Spotify or Apple Music and search TRR Podcast Black Metal Playlist. You'll find it right up there at the top of the results. Any more, any more information for the point of the order, gentlemen, before we proceed with part two? So having engaged in their first actual church burning on June the 6th, 1992, when they torched the 900-year-old Fantoff Stave Church, various slapdicks in the Norwegian black metal scene who had been calling for the event, or taken part in it, didn't quite get the public reaction that they were hoping for. Norwegian society didn't suddenly start to fall apart with the burning of one church, beautiful and ancient though it may have been. People were bummed, but there wasn't the wailing and gnashing of teeth and fires in the street that were hoped for. Remember, it wasn't for weeks that the fact that arson was to blame came to light. The original cause was thought to be an electrical short, so while they waited for the satanic revolution to start from the basement of Helveta, their shitty Oslo record store home base, the boys of the black metal scene began to wonder where they'd gone wrong. The perpetual motion machine of one-upmanship that was the relationship between Varg Vikernes and Euronymous was hard at work, and, Va and Varg knew that if the burning of Fantoff Church didn't cause the social uproar he'd hoped for, then his efforts to achieve dominance in the scene over Euronymous would be compromised. And so it was decided that the answer to no response about the church burning was more church burnings. There was a significant time gap between the Fantoft arson and the next attack, but eight weeks later, on the 1st of August, 1992, Rev Heim Church in Stavanger, much newer and dating from the 1860s, went up in flames, a pentagram spray-painted on the path leading to the front door. Three weeks later, Holman Colin Chapel in Oslo, built in the early 20th century in the Stave Church style, went up. Then churches in Ormaya, Skjold, and Hauketo, all by the beginning of October. In a later interview with the heavy metal zine Orcrustus, Isan, the bassist for Emperor, stated, quote, Witnessed by the moon, these symbolic acts of anti-Christian war enlightened the night with pagan flames. Heathen barbarism is on the rise. We will bring back the forgotten past of strength, pride, and victory. Then, after the burning of, of Hauketo, there was a pause. The Norwegian public was finally turned on to the fact that this was a concerted campaign of church arsons happening. Although church fires aren't that unusual in Norway, or anywhere else for that matter, and churches are frequent targets of nighttime arson because people are rarely there late at night and most arsonists don't actually want to kill anybody, this many in one stretch was highly unusual. Between 1945 and 1992, there had only been nine incidents of confirmed church arson in Norway, and now there have been six in 1992 alone. After the discovery of arson at Fantoft, the Norwegian Fire Service investigators really picked up the pace on their investigations, and the gap between fire and news of arson shrank from weeks to hours. As such, public outcry was raised, and Norwegian law enforcement increased patrols around churches and offered rewards for info leading to arrests. Since the heat was turned up, the black metalers backed off for a while. For all their bold talk about wanting to spit in the face of society and overturn norms until they were back to some ancient Norse utopia, they weren't keen on getting caught. 1992 almost closed out without the further church arson. Almost. The Christmas holiday was too tempting of a time not to burn a church on the day celebrating the birth of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. On Christmas Eve, a sonnet church in Bergen went up in flames. And on the next night, Christmas Day 1992, in Sarpsborg, 50 miles from Oslo, things got real when the local Methodist church was set alight and a firefighter who had made entry to battle the blaze was killed in a structural collapse. Sadly, even after four weeks of looking, I can't find his name anywhere because I would love to be able to honor him. 
Either way, it's hard to believe that yeah. he was the first one. At the, by this point, yeah. Yeah, I mean, these are massive structures. And yeah. a lot of these were, were raised. I mean, like... Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the stave churches all clearly were, because it's hundreds of years of dried kindling. Yeah, exactly. I have to wonder, that was what I was going to say. That's such yeah. a quick-burning... There's no chance to get a those ones, But the other ones, like, this yeah. Methodist church was a fairly modern building. Yeah, but well, they, they kind of still kept up that tradition, even with modern churches, of building mm-hmm. in wood. I was a vi- volunteer firefighter for a while, um, and I got to tell you, I, I by no means an expert in 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 fire science. However, I think you're kind of right with the hundred years of kindling. You get by the time you get there, it's it's protect it's everything right. else, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So either way, like that suicide or the opening of Helvetica, this marks a real turning point for the Norwegian black metal story. No longer was the death involved just rhetorical or self-inflicted. Plus, as sad as the church burnings are, buildings can be rebuilt. People can't. So someone outside of the scene was now dead because these little fuckwits thought life in Norway was too good. And this firefighter would not be the last fatality. Now, one more church would burn in the rash of arsons at Lundi in uh, in Gothenburg on February 7th, 1993. But after the firefighter's death, the heat was up too high and the black metalers decided that a change of tack was necessary. That didn't mean that the black metalers were going to make use of what they'd done. Or weren't going to make use of what they'd done. Remember, these guys believed that there was no such thing as bad publicity, and they had no problem making as much noise as they could within the wider metal scene, that they could have possibly been responsible for the rash of church arsons in Norway that were now European-wide news. Varg used a picture of the burnout at ruins of Fantoff Stave Church as the cover for his Bursum EP, Aska, which is Norwegian for ashes. Talk of what the Norwegian black metalers had been doing was part of the social rumblings at every European metal show in late 92 and early 93. However, these wouldn't be the end of church burnings, not by a long shot. In March of 94, as a sort of counterattack to the fact that the Norwegian justice system was finally starting to catch up to some of these dipshits, the church burnings started again. Between March of 94 and November of 95, 18 more church arson attempts were launched, about half of which were actually successful in heavily damaging or destroying their ecclesiastical targets. While there were other incidents of church arson in Norway in this period, these are the ones that could be credibly attributed to members of the Norwegian Black Circle or their close fans. And I've been thinking a lot as to why it was setting fire to churches that became the go-to way of sticking it to the Norwegian masses for these guys. I couldn't quite square why churches were the target in a country that is so secular by such a wide margin. Like we talked about last time, but then I realized it's a lot like looking at fundamentalist Christians in this country. Your average Catholic or Presbyterian in America goes about their day without thinking about Satan very much at all, but when every single moment of the day is viewed through a highly religious lens, then the constant presence of Satan as the adversary must also be at the forefront of your mind. The flip side has to be true for the black metalers, too. If they're constantly thinking about doing things for Satan, honoring Satan, then the main adversary becomes God. It becomes Christ. And that becomes a daily presence in their lives that is much more outsized than it is for the Norwegian public at large. Yeah, they became far more religious in a in a Judeo-Christian sense than the vast majority of the population. Mm-hmm. And it also doubled as a represent so they you know they're so wrapped up in their own, you know, the the, the early the old gods, Odin and what have you. These were representatives of what separated yeah. the culture from the old ways. Yeah, the churches as the embodiment of the presence of the Godhead becomes a pride and target. 
Well, and as I think we talked about it in the first episode. They they were true believers, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to you know they they weren't Levee atheists or Satanists, but they were Close basically yeah, it, atheists. They weren't yeah. they weren't Satanism by way of themed atheism. <clears throat> they were true Satanists. Yeah, yeah, they yeah they actually believe. In Satan and in God, and they fall down on the other side. It's a form of satanic fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. Or counterpoint, they were just a bunch of edge lords that thought this would get a rise out of people. Oh, I think that's absolutely <laughs> a part of it too. I mean, that's that's fair enough. But you can tell that they are heavily wrapped up into their own ideology. Mm-hmm. And and you're right, Kyle, because the you know these churches and body Christianities take over a spiritual life in Norway from Norse paganism. And they're, because these guys are so believing at the same time in the purity of ancient Norse worship of the Asir, you know, at the same time, their embrace of, along with their embrace of Satanism, which even two weeks after, two weeks later into this process, I still can't square. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it, it, the, the emergence of the church re- represents a defeat for something they hold dear. And doubly, and this goes doubly so, I think, for the stave churches, because the stave churches are these, ancient artifacts of the exact period where Christianity is taking over in Norway in the 11th and 12th centuries. And they are still standing. Like, Because we said Fantoft was built in, what, the 1150s? Mm-hmm. That's right about the same time that Norway was becoming, that that part of Norway was becoming heavily Christianized. For the first mm-hmm. time, really. So, it, these aren't just representative. I mean, they are signs of that paradigm, artifacts of that paradigm shift that's happening. And, and and if it weren't for the cross on top of it, you'd think that Fantoft was a Viking home. It's oh, I mean, yeah. it's, it's covered in the same sort of Viking carvings and and of, of animals and people that have been around for centuries. It's covered in runic script, and and the roof is carved. Remember to resemble the um, the the scales of a great serpent. And there's a big right. dragon's head on the front. They're of it. super fucking metal. It's yeah. incredible. And that, yeah, that's what's ironic about this. And the, and they were um, uh, they were tarred timbers. So it's mm-hmm. this giant black. Spire with mm-hmm. a dragon on it, and they're like, oh, "I gotta burn this bitch down." Well, it looks it looks like the prow of a Viking longship mm-hmm. coming out of the. But it's definitely done in that architectural style, like the like the like the crossed mm-hmm. arches and everything. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, if you go to some of these museums and you look at things like the Oseberg ship and these these ships, these car- ornately carved longships that have been recovered, I mean the the artistic tradition is the same. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what's well, and like it's so fucking frustrating because it's like. All right, we could burn this super black metal thing and be dickheads, or we could like buy it and turn it into like a fucking microbrewery. Come on, they're, they're not on, a dude. group of dudes in their early thirties <laughs> in two thousand and ten. Yeah. They're not, yeah, they're, they're not in Williamsburg. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is that one of the things that's typical, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, is typically in in Christian circles when missions have come in, the mm-hmm. first thing that they do is they to actually be able to proselytize is they accept the traditions of mm-hmm. whatever culture it is and then they use those as archetypes. Well, like, like I said, well, you know, there's yeah. arguments about whether you... It's, you know, it's, it happened long before the Catholic Church. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I exactly. mean, the ancient Romans would do yeah, that. It's, right. of, do you ever see the Roman pantheon and gods? It's, right. it's crowded. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And Well, you know, and the Catholic Church did it too. Um, so it, it, it would not, you know, it, yeah. it, it would not... Fit anything other than the idea of okay, you guys are a bunch of Vikings. You like this Viking stuff? We'll take it. So did and Jesus. Well, yeah. Jesus was the most black Viking you've ever seen. <laughs> <It's>, 
And when he brought that fish and split it in half with his giant fucking axe, he fed all of the people. I mean, he was he was a like shirtless white dude with long hair. So I yeah, mean, I mean, that's <laughs> that's a Viking. Great big beard. Yeah. yeah. Actually, you know, as a Christian, that's the one thing that pisses me off more than anything is the Anglicanized version of Jesus Christ. No wonder they crucified him. What the the fuck is that? That's your bugaboo? That's a ghost. That's That's the one? No, that's... I didn't say it was my only one. (laughs) Yeah, you take take a, a Middle Eastern... Jewish savior who ends up looking like a guy who does metal crafting at German craft fairs. And he's Obi Wan Kenobi. Well, and, and the in, in the picture, you know, the pictures are always the Jesus is a buck twenty five soaking wet. The guy was a carpenter for thirty years, and we're not talking about carpenters like right now, where yeah. you know two by fours and drywall. We're talking about oak cypress logs that you're using. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we get into how much Varg hates bodybuilding. He would yeah. not have liked the way Jesus was built. Well, he might have liked hates. Hates, hates, he hates. As I quotation finger because we're a nothing, audio medium. Nothing My. makes me nothing nothing makes him just more angry than shirtless greased up beefcakes. <laughs> <laughs> and boy, does he love telling you that he doesn't yeah. like it. Well, it, it's it's interesting too because the rhetoric of the black metal scene is that they built these churches on top of our holy sites to as a way of grinding their boot heel into us. No, it's convenience. Mm-hmm. You mentioned right. this. I, so, like, yeah, one of my, it really was. So one of my favorite places in the world is the Orkney Islands north of Scotland. And and what you're seeing there is you see, and, and you see this all over the British Isles, it's an Anglo-Saxon church built next to the site of a Roman temple, built next to a Celtic holy site, built next to a Bronze Age burial mound, which is built next to a Neolithic stone circle. It's just, well, people have been coming here for hundreds of years for their spiritual well, well-being. Okay, the paradigm has shifted, but people are already coming here. So let's just build it here. You There's know. ample parking. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, it, it, you, know, they, you know, they say that Fantoff's altar was built over the, the exact remains of the Norse altar, which I found out uh, this week was called a horg. Which is nice. <laughs> which, uh, oh, it's Or as you might call it, a hopa. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it took me about six weeks. Not bad, considering I carved it out of a single block of wood. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> So, yeah, so it's, and it's, uh, also, remember how I mentioned that Fantoft was burnt on June 6th? So later testimony by some of these, uh, by some of those involved would claim that the whole 666 thing, Satan thing on the date was actually just pure dumb luck. Uh, that it wasn't intentional. But Varg Vickerness would later claim that it was, be not because of the whole 666 thing. He was a big Lemieux fan. He <laughs> was a great one. Yeah. He said it was for Le Magnifique. Le Magnifique. Now, Varg said that the date was important because June 6th was the anniversary of history's most famous Viking raid. In 793, a band of Vikings attacked the monastery on the holy island of Lindisfarne in Northumbria on the northeast coast of England, bringing fire, slaughter, and slavery to the population of monks, and marking the first presence of the Vikings on the British Isles. Now, you know, for centuries the sermons of British and Irish priests would intone from the fury of the Northmen, O Lord, deliver us. And Varg being Varg, he got the date wrong. But the statement still suited his purpose. He wanted the black metalers, their torches in hand, ready to burn Norway's Christianity to ash to be seen as the new Viking raiders ready to unleash fire and death in the name of Odin. Oh, bullshit. And, and Satan. It does make one wonder what a long ship full of Viking raiders would have thought of these mm-hmm. these like dirty, humorous miscreants barely out of adolescence. These fucking buck 15, Ooh. skinny, tiny, <laughs> tall, armpit hair... 
tank top wearing motherfuckers. <laughs> like Ragnar Lothbrok would take one look at Helvet and go, burn it down. <laughs> I, I've, 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 they would take them as their brides. <laughs> you know, I've heard this. Well, now that makes a lot more sense with the whole Varg thing. Yeah. That's fair. I've heard this rant before. It was the same bullshit in 1969 when, um, nice. when Charlie Manson, yeah, thank you, when Charlie Manson drove up into the hills and got all his followers to go in and uh, and kill Sharon Tate. Red Pratt. And yeah, oh, we're gonna start a race war. We're gonna do this. We're gonna do that. You know, put pigs on the wall in the blood. Yada yada yada. Yeah, he was just pissed. He, he didn't realize he didn't realize that Brian Wilson had already moved. He was up there pissed off because Brian Wilson stole a riff. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. It was yeah. that, and it was Tex was doing too many drugs. Well, so they were all doing too many yeah. drugs. So despite the fact that it was the church burnings that were getting the lion's share of attention in terms of the black metal crimes, another act, this one far more heinous than anything that had come before, because of the sheer. Uh, the sheer spur-of-the-moment violence and the hatred involved is astounding. On August of 1992, a 20, the 20-year-old drummer for the band Emperor, Bard Aitun, who had, a, had the admittedly cool stage name of Faust, was mm. visiting his mother in Lillehammer, Norway, future home of the 94 Winter Olympics. Now, Faust was a ropey little guy with long, greasy hair and a terrible disposition who was one of the more vocal members of the scene and very keen to parrot Varg's rhetoric regarding everything from immigrants to gay people. Remember the uh, the black metal scene I mentioned earlier with the awful name of Orcrustus? Faust was, Faust was the publisher of that. He'd also taken part in the burning of Holman Colon Chapel and is suspected of having been present at several of the other arsons. He had a reputation for verbal threats and fighting, particularly when he felt someone of the same gender was hitting on him, which, having seen pictures of Faust from the early 90s, I'm willing to bet that wasn't the actual case very often. So on August 12th, Faust was out having a drink at a local bar, but claims he left stone sober because, quote, the atmosphere didn't suit me. That's about the gayest thing that you could possibly <laughs> say. He's not I mean, gay. <laughs> he's just fussy. I want to go have a beer. I'm not worried about the ambiance. Yeah. <laughs> so Faust decided to head back to Mommy's house and cut through the newly expanded Olympic Park to do so. This is just getting... Yeah. More and more on point. Yeah. And, and, and so much like the brambles in Central Park or every street corner in whatever town is hosting CPAC that year, Olympic Park at this point is, no, is a known cruising and gay hookup site. And what's unknown is how much this was at the forefront of Faust's mind when he was taking that walk. It, uh, so on his walk, Faust was approached by 39-year-old Magna Andreasen, who asked Faust for a light, even though Magna was already smoking a lit cigarette. Now chances are this is cruising code. Magna asking Faust... Uh, uh, Magna asking Faust, who was in a popular cruising spot, if he was in, interested in a little no-strings-attached fun. Which Faust recognized as a come-on. Immediately, yeah. So why Magna didn't wait for someone who was decidedly less Gollum-like to come by, I don't know. But that's what happened. So instead of politely declining and moving on, which is what anybody with half a brain is going to do if you get cruised and you're not interested, Faust instead decided then and there that he was going to kill Magna Andreasen for the offense of being gay near him. And by the way, my previous statements when I say this is the gayest or whatever, hey, I'm pro-LGBT. <laughs> I, I have no problem with it. It's just when, when it's fuckers like these that yeah. you know they, they, they can't overcome overcome their homophobia. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 a, and a lot of people want to chalk what, what Faust did to the... Uh, t to the homophobic rhetoric that are in, had infected the black metal scene thanks to Varg. 
But I think it goes a step further than that. Mm-hmm. I, I think Faust got cruised and made his fuck parts go boing, and he didn't know how to handle it. Exactly. Yep. I, you know, I think it triggered an erotic response in his mind, even if just for a second, and he didn't know how to square that with what he was supposed to think about being gay. And remember in the first episode how we discussed that these guys, for all the homophobic nonsense, spent a lot of time arguing that the most eaves, the most satanic thing they could do to reject polite Norwegian society was to do butt stuff with other dudes? Yeah. That's going to cross some wires. Hey, hey, it's it's not gay if it pisses off God. <laughs> oh, wait, you, no, wait. Huh? Well, um, you, know, you know what would be the most... They had e- a chart. It was all written. <laughs> you know what would be the most evil thing we could possibly do to glorify the name of Satan and break down Christian society in Norway is if you and I go into the bushes together and we do all sorts of things and then we hopelessly fall in love and we stay together 50, 60 years and we get a nice semi-detached house with two adopted daughters and a Labrador. That we will do for Satan. <laughs> and it's got... It's the meme from Always Sunny in Philadelphia where, with all the... Charlie, yeah, yeah, Charlie, look at Pepe Sylvia. Yeah. So Magna asked Faust if he wanted to go for a walk in the nearby woods. Mm. Faust had agreed to go with Magna and followed him for some time until he decided that the moment was right. Later saying, quote, I don't really remember what happened exactly, but I knew that if I didn't do it then, then I wasn't going to get another opportunity. Faust pulled the folding knife he always carried from his back pocket and then wheeled around, stabbing poor Magna in the stomach. As Magna fell to his knees, Faust went into a frenzy, stabbing him a total of 37 times in his head, neck, and upper body. On the final strike, Faust stabbed Magna between the shoulder blades so hard that he had to brace his foot against the body to get it out again. Which is impressive for a man who wears 14 pounds. Yeah, it's, pretty well. Well, there's a lot of rage there. 37 times, that's got to be exhausting. It's It has to take well, some physical, time. Yeah. Again, yeah. It's, it, it's coming from somewhere. Yeah. This isn't, yeah, there's, dude's got some, yeah, that's maybe the sex true. was bad. <laughs> well, Faust walked away. He said away. he didn't remember, that's maybe all I'm saying. Was, well, Faust walked all those yeah. no beers. Maybe, was, maybe his mouth was dry. <laughs> Faust walked away, but he heard the dying Magnum making some soft noises showing that he was still alive. So, Faust kicked Magna in the head as hard as he could over a dozen times, caving in Magna Andreas' skull. The medical examiner at the later trial would state that while Magna almost certainly would have died as a result of the 37 stab wounds unless he received practically immediate medical attention, it was in fact the cranial trauma that killed him. Faust would later state in trial that his reason for coming back and beating Magna to finish him off was simply to eliminate the risk of Magna surviving and telling the authorities. Magna's body was found two days later by a 15-year-old girl jogging in the area. The day after the murder, Faust returned to Oslo, playing a show for Emperor, and helped burn down Home and Colon Chapel, thereby completing the black metal version of a Gordie Howe hat trick. He immediately began to brag to everyone in the scene that he could about the murder he just committed. And the following day, he found himself in the unique position of having been responsible for both the lead and the follow-up stories on that night's national news. So let's take a half step back. <clears throat> so this, this tells you how fucking, like... They're all idiot fucking 20-year-olds. Mm-hmm. So he goes back and caves this man's skull in so he doesn't get caught and then proceeds over the next week to tell everyone he meets about that awesome-ass murder he committed. Um, They're not the brightest individuals. Did we see the movie Menace to such, Society? It's such an insular community where it's... If you tell everybody, they're probably not going to tell anybody who will tell anybody that will get you in trouble. Yeah, it's, it's Black Metal's version of Omerta. But yeah. you can only I mean, everybody your, knew who was burning down the churches. But you can only prove you're evil if you tell everyone you're evil. Which is the same like, oh, I didn't burn the church, but here's my fucking album cover. 
Right. How, how do, and the flyers I put out all about it, and like, but I totally didn't do it. I did it. How many serial killers get caught this way, though? They eventually get to a point where Gary Ridgeway. Yeah, it's a, it, 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 it's no fun unless you yeah. unless everybody knows about it. Yeah, of course for Faust, but also for Varg, Euronymous, and the others, this murder became some sort of fucking currency for them to use when talking about how evil the scene actually was, mostly when they were trying to chat up girls. Now, suffice to say, the authorities had no real evidence as to who could have possibly committed the murder of Magna Andreessen. There's some forensic evidence at the scene, but not much, and nothing that could be tied to anyone in particular. DNA evidence existed, but it was somewhat corrupted, and the technology at the time could only produce basic profiles, and it took a long time to do that. The evidence from the Andreasen murder had to be sent all the way to the Max Planck Institute in Munich for analysis, and that would take months to come back. There were no living witnesses to the murder itself, and if anyone witnessed the earlier encounter between Faust and Magna in the park, no one came forward. Faust, if he had played it carefully, might have gotten away with it. Now, justice would eventually be served, sort of, but it was only after a truly stupid showing of the black metal scene's hand that the authorities would finally begin to get on Faust's trail for the murder, but there will be more on that shortly. While the church arsons were happening and Magna Andreasen was losing his life at Faust's crusty little hands, other wheels of crime were spinning up as well thanks to the black metal scene and their dangerous cycle of groupthink and one-upmanship. Now, most of this stuff was minor, the kind of things that shitty teenagers do. We're talking graffiti, we're talking B&E, some theft, then leaving of threats of all kinds through phone calls, the mail, and on bulletin boards against targets ranging from politicians and religious leaders to other musicians and even their old school teachers. Now, most of this stuff is the kind of annoying crime that ends up on the police blotter section of the newspaper, it fucks up someone's day, and it makes life a little more difficult for everybody, but it doesn't put people at the risk of true bodily harm. Remember, for all their tough talk, most of these black metalers are softer than baby shit and they're absolute cowards. They had lives of privilege growing up, and all of their needs were being handled either by family money or by the Norwegian social safety net. The church arsons and the murder of Magna Andreasen are the exceptions that happen once these guys start to egg each other on to such an extent that you're driven to do something stupid just so you can maintain the most minimum level of standing and social currency within the scene. This entire thing is just freshman, freshman, do something crazy, taken to the worst level. I mean, pretty much, yeah. yeah. It's, it's that on a macro scale. It's, so the, a focus of these events becomes the feud that erupted between the black metalers and the Scandinavian death metal scene after Euronymous referred to death metal in a fanzine interview as, quote, the worst of the trend music, end quote, life metal. Burn! I mean, it's, it's hardly, oh, world star! It, I mean, it's kind of creative. Life metal. Life metal. Get the <laughs> fuck out of here. <laughs> now, the I world- thought Creed was life metal. <laughs> <laughs> Now the you war- hear that Scott State? Come over here, punch me. I want I want you to. <laughs> what do you think Stapp's up to right now? Uh, who's who's sex tape did he like show up in the background of? Wasn't it Kid Rock? <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> well, she's like, what's going on in here? And they're like, not now, Scott Stapp. And he's <laughs> like, later. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I somehow didn't know there was a Kid Rock sex tape. Oh, it's an I, old one. I, I mean, I I, my, I feel ooh. like I feel like there was still. Uh, did he have his current Joe, body where he's just like a torso Joe, with like oh my goodness. wet spaghetti uh, the little person. Shell Crow? No, no. The, the, oh, no, I, I, uh, oh, Joe C. Joe, Joe C. C. Yeah. I almost said Chuck D. I was yeah, like, that's yeah, different. No, <laughs> different, different guy. Yeah. <laughs> All I know is I there, feel like he was like in the picture. Like I feel it was in a tour bus. So I feel like he was still around. And he's Joe, been dead for yeah. almost Standing there with arms wide open. Joe, Joe C. might have been there, but I know Hep, Hep C was. Oh. <laughs> so... 
The war. Kid Rock looks like if Put In Bay was a person. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he does. <laughs> he, he, he looks like an if you had to make an anthropic anthropomorphic version of Scabies, it's kids. It's Kid Rock. He looks yeah. like everyone from Ohio at once. <laughs> <laughs> Ohio, you're the worst state in the union. <laughs> so the war of words. That's, God damn it. TRRPod at gmail.com. Come at me, bitch. <laughs> so Ooh, three major cities. Yeah, who the fuck wants to live in them? <laughs> you fought Michigan over Toledo and lost well, the Upper know. Peninsula. <laughs> so the, the war of words had escalated to the point where Varg, who was the loudest voice in calling for violence against these death metal artists, surprise, surprise, was mailing photos to some of these singers of themselves with buckshot holes in them. Pretty overt. But on the 26th of July, 1992, things escalated again just outside of Stockholm, where the house of death metal musician Christopher Jonsson of the Swedish band Therion was set afire with Jonsson and his pregnant girlfriend inside. The culprit was an 18-year-old girl from Finland named Suvi Purinen, who had moved to Oslo because she was obsessed with Varg, or at least with his stage persona, Count Grishnak. The flames were put out before they could do much damage, but a note was found pinned to Jonsson's front door with a buck knife that read, The Count was here, and he will come back. Several days after the attempted arson, Jonsson received a letter in the mail that read, quote, Hello, victim. This is the Count. I have just come home from a journey to Sweden, and I think I lost a match and a signed Porzum LP. Ha ha ha, the ha 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 is written out. Perhaps I will make a return trip soon, and this time you won't wake up in the middle of the night. I will give you a lesson in fear. We are really mentally deranged. Our methods are death and torture. Our victims will die slowly. They must die slowly. End quote. Now, Suvi was arrested after a tip-off to police. It- this is the one time where I kind of got to, like, this is the only point in his entire existence I've ever kind of felt bad for Varg, because she kept signing his name on shit, Yeah, he didn't do any of it. <laughs> you know he fucking loved it, though. Oh, I'm sure that he did yeah. just violent, weird stuff to his <laughs> sex parts. We are really mentally deranged. That one, sta- that one stands out to me. Uh, he's like, come on, oh, come on. <laughs> really? Yeah, so Suvi was arrested after a tip-off to police and received one year in a mental institution for the attempted arson. In her diary, she wrote of the attack, quote, I did it on a mission for our dear leader, the Count. Jesus Christ. I love the Count. His dark, sublime fantasies are the best. I want another knife. A fine knife. A sharp and cruel knife. He, he, he. Literally written out. He, he, he. H-E-E, H-E-E, H-E-E. I don't know what it is with the Norwegians, but right <laughs> Like, I have a friend from Norway. Yeah, I don't even think I've ever gotten an LOL out of him. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah. I, I think you're painting Norway with a fairly broad brush well, on this one. The, I feel like this is just a young idiot girl who thinks Varg's hot for well, some that, reason. You didn't get an LOL because the true black metalers don't laugh. Oh, he was true. a poser. Could yeah. be it. Sorry, Jesper. <laughs> so on January 30th, after seven church arsons, the attempted murder of Christopher Jonsson in Sweden and the still unsolved murder of Magna Andreasen. An envelope containing a long series of written pages was delivered to the offices of the Bergens Tidende newspaper in Bergen, Norway, one of the country's most popular journalistic outlets. Within was an interview conducted by two anonymous hardcore black metal fans with an individual none of the journalists present had ever heard of called Count Grishnak. While the written interview was interesting, it wasn't quite of a standard to print, so after pursuing a lot of leads on how to get in touch with this Grishnak fella, 
Bergenstidende-journist Finn Bjorn Tonder was able to arrange a sit-down interview with the Count and several other black metal musicians under the condition that their real names would remain unused. The journalist showed up to a Bergen apartment and was threatened with being shot if they revealed the address or called the police. Varg and his companions then laid out that they were indeed the ones who had burnt the churches, or they knew the ones who did, and warned that the attacks would continue. They laid out what was essentially their manifesto, with Varg unveiling in flamboyant statements the story of a grand conspiracy aimed at overthrowing the forces of good in Norway. The article went to print on January 20th, 1993, and the country at large was introduced to the black metal scene with a picture of Varg in corpse paint with his face mostly hidden, wielding a pair of wicked-looking knives with the headline, We Lit the Churches Aflame. Now, Varg made plans to flee to Poland if he had felt that the article was going to lead police onto his tail. However, he was arrested that morning on suspicion of arson <laughs> because of flyers that had been put up advertising the new Burzum E.P. Aska yep. with the photo of the Burt Church on the front, and they just simply went to the address printed on these flyers and picked up Varg. <laughs> so because that's the... Wow. Yep. I killed this man... So he can't tell on me, but also, <laughs> here's my fucking home address. It's like, it's like pictures of OJ's bloody hands going, just just saying, has anyone checked on, on Ron and Nicole? Or, 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 or uh, uh, OJ, I don't know, writing a book that says, if I did it, here's how I would. Yeah. Well, at least he did it after he walked. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> So in his interview, Varks claimed that the Bergens Tedenda article was not based on truth, but it was merely a publicity stunt contrived by himself and Euronymous in order to generate public outcry, increase Black Metal's public profile, and generate more money for the Helvetta record shop and Death Like Silence Productions. He also claimed that they came forward with a contrived story because punking the journalists would be, quote, a good laugh. Let's ignore here the Black Metal standards demand. You never laugh at anything at all. Within two days of Varg's arrest, almost a dozen other Black Metal scenesters were also taken into custody for being involved in the church fires. From jail, Varg gave an interview to the Norwegian music magazine Rock Furore in February, where he said of the prison system, quote, It's much too nice in here. It's not hell at all. In this country, prisoners get a bed, a toilet, a place to shower. They're given food. It's completely ridiculous. I asked the police to throw me in a real dungeon, and I told them to use violence. End quote. I mean, we can send him over to America for a couple of months. He asked, yeah. he asked to be in a more American prison system. See how he does in Angola. It, so it was either actual dungeon or American prison system. Sweet. We're doing great, guys. <laughs> we're out here. Doing we're great. fucking yeah. killing Winning. it out here. Frustratingly, though, Varg and all the other arrested black metal scenesters would be released by the beginning of March 1993 because the scarce physical evidence at the scenes of the church arsons were not enough to prove their presence at the fires. Black metalers are too light to actually leave yeah. footprints. <laughs> <laughs> so when Varg and the others were arrested, Euronymous decided that the heat was getting to be a little too much, and so he made the decision, influenced by his fed-up parents finally turning off the financial taps, to close down his Oslo record store, Helvetta, which caused the average cleanliness in the city to immediately go up, <laughs> and to run his recording company, Death Like Silence Productions, out of his home. <laughs> Just... Mom, you can't shut down my record store. Where will I keep my evil? There's one guy. He's a, you know, he's he, he's an exterminator. He pulls out raccoons and possums and dead stuff from under people's houses, and he's like, "Oh shit, they closed the store. What am I going to do with these?" <laughs> <laughs> there goes my overtime. So this was an earth-shattering move within the scene, viewed as a, as a betrayal 
of their most loyal fans and supporters, and it caused a ripple of dissatisfaction that was already starting to climb as a result of Euronymous's utter ineptitude when it came to managing businesses. I mean, it'd be like CBGB closing in the New York scene for the punks in like the seventies. Yeah. Like it is. It's it's as much smaller scale. Yeah, I was, was like gonna that, say, that except that it was of. like thirty people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah but CBGB was. But it was the blackest thirty people. <laughs> there were only only thirty people worthy. <laughs> Dark enough. So we all know that within the East Coast West Coast rap wars of the '90s in the U.S., the massive disputes that erupted into violence were based around record deals worth hundreds of millions of dollars. With Norwegian black metal, they were lucky if these deals reached the values of in the thousands. Can I have a sandwich? Yeah. <laughs> So, Euronymous oh, at this point, I, this is where I got to throw it in. First, you get the chicken. You chicken, 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 chicken. There was one of the deals that was mentioned, and it was like 543 American dollars. I thought it was a typo. Their deal was 543 American dollars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Euronymous was making promises to artists that he had no ability to keep, and he was far too ambitious in signing and recording new artists and paying them advances, small though those may have been, but was utterly shit-awful at making actual marketing, at actually marketing and selling the artists he already had deals with. He had opportunities to sell albums in more general music stores, but he refused because they had embraced all the so-called trend music that was out there. I mean, Bursum's first album release was paid by fucking Grishnak's mom. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, the standards, and the standards of ideological purity in the black metal scene remanded that he refused. So revenues were non-existent, and what little did come in, he was using to pay those advances to new artists instead of paying royalties. And as you mentioned, the first self-titled Bursum EP was paid by Varg's mom, the Danish Nazi, well, whom Euronymous was supposed to pay back, and that never happened. So we have to combine several factors here. One is the financial grievances over the mismanagement of death-like silence. Then there's Varg's increased social cachet in the scene as a result of the Bergen's Tedenda article and him walking free after being arrested for arson, plus his desire to become top dog over Euronymous. Then there's the fact that there were just some qualities about Euronymous <laughs> that, really, <laughs> that, that really started to bug people. I mean, number one, he didn't seem all that interested anymore in the violence and destruction side of things. There were plenty of guys after the fact who kept saying things like, all he ever wanted to do was listen to music, eat kebabs, and drink Coca-Cola. We wanted to burn churches. Plus, Euronymous had a habit of wearing crop tops, and so he would sit around with his stomach hanging out, and people really started to hate that. Plus, there were some rumors... I would really hate that. That's that's a really weird thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just, I'm only going to wear half a shirt just because. I mean, there was a lot of that in the 80s. You remember um, Sleepaway Camp? Like that counselor oh, in Sleepaway yeah. Camp. Man, that Anything with wild. Jan Michael Vincent in the 80s. Man, that's a wild movie. I like all you guys. We've been on trips together. We've been out of state together. I probably don't want to spend more than about 10 or 15 minutes <laughs> in a room seeing your belly button. <laughs> this is, this like, is if fair. you started eating kebabs while wearing half a shirt, I would stab you 37 times. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I would deserve it. Yeah. And there were a lot of rumors flying around about Euronymous, that he was going to leave the black metal scene altogether, move to Sweden, and become part of the death metal scene in Stockholm, joining their mortal enemies. The life metal yeah. scene? Life metal. Life metal. <laughs> Got him. Is that just metal? Stayed up all night working on that gem. There was a rumor that Euronymous was going to sell them out to the cops and provide testimony as to who exactly had burned what churches. He was a big fan of electronic music like Brian Eno and Kraftwerk. This one was actually true. He, that there was a rumor that he was thinking of taking a government job to pay the bills. And, Jobs. of course, there was the rumor that Euronymous was gay. 
Like I said, aside from the electronic music, none of this appears to be anywhere close to true, but some of the conversations Hieronymus had with Varg that we talked about last episode may mean that his sexuality wasn't what the scene demanded. I mean, in black metal in 1989, no one would have given a shit if you were gay. But by 1993, with Varg as the ideological head, being gay, as we saw with Faust Crimes, is a capital offense. So by the summer of 93, Euronymous and Varg, though once close friends, and perhaps a little more, wink wink, were by now at each other's throats all the time. Say no more, say no more. They refused to even be around each other, probably for the best, and things had reached the point where death threats were flying back and forth between them. The black metal scene had split into two distinct camps, one for each figurehead, a complete schism. Euronymous could talk a good game about evil, but he really was only ever about the music. Varg is about the ideas and actions far more so than the music, talented a musician though he may be. Euronymous was a guy who was in over his head. Varg is a complete predator. The breaking point was near, and it was coming. We'll be back with the rest of the story after a short break. Life is too short for bad cocktails. A good party can be a great party with a signature drink and the right bartender making it. From happy hour to reunion, or an intimate dinner to a lavish wedding, the Last Word Cocktail Company can provide everything you need to make your next event an experience that your guests will never forget. The Last Word offers in-person and virtual cocktail classes for both groups and individuals to up your game and teach you the techniques to make the perfect libation. You can learn the art of the Manhattan, the elegance of the martini, and any of the classics from pre-prohibition to modern. When you throw a party, why throw a bad party? And when it comes to cocktails, don't just have a say. Have the last word. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the last word PGH for more information. Welcome back, and now it's time for our Estonia fact of the episode. Did you know that no other country has been more successful than Estonia at the International Wife Carrying Championships? In fact, although the sport is Finnish in origin, Estonian competitors took first place for 11 consecutive years between 1998 and 2009, and have spent only two years since 2009 not coming in first place. It's a dynasty. It's, it's an a dynasty. absolute dynasty. Did you ever actually watch wife carrying? It's, yeah. It's hilarious. Because yeah. it's the wife being carried... It is, it is perilous to look at. It's not just like somebody hanging on to your back. They're like upside down because <laughs> I guess it's easier to hold. I don't know. I found this out. I'm not Estonian. I found this I out. I just on, respect that. I found this out upon a little bit of further examination. The upside down wife carry was a technique developed by the Estonians. <laughs> Well, that's how the dynasty. You're getting a two for one on the Estonia as, fact as, of the episode. As, as, They're as like fucking Mercedes Benz and Formula One. You yeah. just I, I was going to say it was like running the diamond trap with the devils, but okay. As, we'll get a little more international. As somebody that's not familiar with this craft, I just have to ask: Do they have this contest every cocktail good? <laughs> they do. <laughs> I actually don't know what day of the week it falls on. They do. It mm. is a. Uh, <laughs> I'm never going to live that fact out. <laughs> I mean, we, we went to Google. We went to a commercial break for yeah, that. exactly. <laughs> so, back to the story. On the 10th of August, 1993, the power struggle between Varg and Euronymous finally came to a head. Varg claimed that Samoth, remember her, had called him to warn him that the next time they encountered each other, Euronymous was planning to hit Varg with a stun gun, tie him up, and torture him to death on film. He's going to hide the stun gun underneath his fucking crop top. (laughs) (laughs) You would have been able to see it. You would have been fine. (laughs) And so, when the time came for Varg to meet with Euronymous about a contract negotiation for his next album, Varg decided that it was best that he come armed to defend himself. 
Now, despite the fact that these dweebs threaten to kill each other all the time, Vark reasoned that Samoth must be telling the truth as only Samoth knew of this plan, and if Euronymous was merely posturing, he would have mentioned it to everybody. The Vark was also suspicious because he received a letter from Euronymous in a rather conciliatory tone about producing the next Burzum album that Varg described as, quote, sweet, pink, and cozy. Naturally, in Varg's mind, this meant that Euronymous was setting a trap. The letter was real. Varg's statement that Samoth warned him of Euronymous's lethal intent, according to Samoth, was not. Later telling police that he had intended to confront Euronymous about the threats and tell Euronymous to fuck off, Varg set off on the long trip from Bergen to Oslo being driven by one of his toadies, a 21-year-old named Snorre Ruch, a.k.a. Blackthorn. The whole time, 12 hours, Varg hid in the backseat under a blanket and pissing into water bottles because he claimed that he was by now too famous and well-known in Norway, and if he was seen, then Euronymous might be warned of his coming. So, you're telling me that people that are involved in medieval church burnings and killing gay men might be a little paranoid? Who'd have thunk it, huh? Just a scooch. <laughs> Snorre Ruch. So, whether Blackthorne knew about the thing knew about things ahead of time was up in the air, and we're not sure if he actually did know about Varg's plans or if he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But nevertheless, after the fact, he did try to conceal and cover up what is about to happen. Arriving at Euronymous's building at 3 o'clock in the morning... Varg buzzed up, and after answering the front door of his entire apartment building in nothing but his underpants, Euronymous led Varg to his fourth-floor apartment while Blackthorn stayed outside by the car and chain-smoked cigarettes. Uh, it's also interesting to note that in all of his statements about events, even in court, Snorri Ruch refers to Varg only as the Count. Now there are two. I mean, he was a toady. It, yeah. it does make sense. I think there's a reason he got recruited for this. Right. And you're talking about chain-smoking cigarettes. I just got to wonder, were they cloves? I they had to be. I close. have no idea. Well, it's a poser either, cigarette. It's yeah. a poser cigarette. Well, he said that the whole time he was downstairs smoking a cigarette, so he was either chain smoking or he was smoking the new Camel Fifteen Thousand. <laughs> so, <laughs> extra extra yeah. wide. Now there are two stories here: Varg's and the story that the evidence suggests. Euronymous and Varg had a short conversation at the front door, and Varg said that Euronymous made him a better offer than he expected, and Varg changed his mind about not doing a deal. After supposedly signing and dating the contract by the front door, Varg said that Euronymous offered a small cash-in-hand advance if he came up to his fourth-floor apartment, and Varg followed the tidy-whitey-clad Euronymous upstairs. Then, he said that Euronymous wheeled around on the stairs, kicked him in the chest 300-style, and, <laughs> and ran upstairs towards his apartment. Fearing that Euronymous was going for a weapon in his apartment, Varg said that he felt he had no choice but to save his own life by going after Euronymous. Chasing Euronymous and drawing a buck knife from the inside of his jacket, Varg stabbed Euronymous in the back, but Euronymous shrugged off the blow and headed through his front door. Varg said that he was convinced Euronymous was going for the shotgun that Dead had killed himself with, which he said he believed Euronymous kept in his bedroom. Now he got in between the room and Euronymous and stabbed Euronymous again, this time in the neck, and so Euronymous fled back out into the hallway, screaming for help and ringing his neighbor's doorbells as he tried to flee Varg. Now, Varg kept stabbing and chasing him down the hallway and back down the stairs, where Euronymous finally tripped and fell, with Varg, who said he now felt he had no choice but to finish off Euronymous in order to protect himself. Varg stabbed Euronymous a total of 23 times in the back, neck, and head. The last killing blow a stab that was so hard that it pierced Euronymous' skull and sank the blade into the hilt. It lodged in Euronymous' skull so hard that Varg had said he had to brace his foot against the side of Euronymous's head in order to free the blade. Oystein Erseth, age 26, was dead. 
After the killing, Varg and Snorre made the 12-hour drive all the way back to Bergen, spending the whole time listening to Dead Can Dance to make the whole experience, to quote Varg later, quote, far more atmospheric, considering what had just happened. Now, there is a pile of evidence that points to Varg's story that he had to kill Euronymous in self-defense as an outright lie. First off, Varg had no consist injuries consistent with being attacked by Euronymous at all, and no forensic evidence at the scene supports this claim. Stabbing somebody 23 times in the back is usually not a <laughs> yeah. great indicator of them attacking you. Yeah. And, Unless you're an American police officer. Well. Secondly. Should have complied. Yeah. The shotgun that Varg feared Euronymous was going for, not there, never was there. Third, Varg's fingerprints were all the fuck over the scene. Then, Euronymous had no defensive wounds in his arms, hands, anywhere, and all the stab wounds were, on, as you said, on the backside of his head and body, indicating that he wasn't putting up any kind of fight, that there was no kind of struggle, and that the whole time he was being stabbed by Varg, the only thing he was trying to do was get away from him. Then, the contract that Varg said he signed in Euronymous' doorway, the date on it was two days before the events of the actual murder, <sighs> indicating that it was signed ahead of time. Varg also said that Euronymous suggested he come upstairs to collect a small cash advance from him, but there was no cash beyond a few coins in the pocket of Euronymous' trousers in his bedroom, and no sign that anything had been stolen either, so that points to Varg making that up as well. Snorri, a.k.a. Blackthorn, also notes that Varg had brought gloves with him, indicating premeditation, but forgot to put them on at any point. <laughs> Oops. Now, now, this shows premeditation on a different level as well, because when Varg mounted his defense, he said, Oh, well, I had my shooting gloves with me. And if I'd intended to murder him beforehand, don't you think I would have put on my shooting gloves? And finally, there's the statement of Varg's other accomplice, who turned state's evidence against Varg in return for immunity and as such remains unidentified in court documents. This accomplice rented a movie, one that all three had seen before, so that they, decided to so that they had to describe the plot for an alibi, they could all do so. The third person was also supposed to be left with Varg's ATM card and PIN number so that he could go and take out some cash in Varg's name while Varg was away, making it look on financial records like Varg was still in Bergen at the time of the murder. However, the wrong card was left, and this part of the alibi plan fell through. In the, uh, in the movie, they mentioned the film, and do you have that in your records? I don't know if, again, I don't know if this was just for dramatization. Uh, this is Autumn of 1993. It's a rentable movie, so we're going to have to go with something that's been out probably for a year. I'm going Beauty and the Beast. Space Jam. No, it's way later. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Space Jam came out from 93. It takes about six months of that time period to go from theater to VHS. Jurassic Park? Uh, no, that was a late summer movie in 93. Yeah. This is Doubtfire. Again, could I, be I, Doubtfire. I, again, this dude could be, did look like a lady. Be, this could be, uh, you know, poetic justice or, you know, poetic license here. But uh, Die Hard 2. Mm. What else was 93? Gettysburg? No, that was no, that wasn't released until the summer. Yeah. That was oh, actually ninety four, I think. Oh, maybe I believe. Anyway. Die, they, they they used Die Hard too. Yeah. I don't know. That's what they used in Lord's Chaos. The movie. Brave Little Toaster. <laughs> well, so, here's another thing though that you that, that you didn't mention that points toward um, Vark's premeditation or Vark's state of mind. In my opinion, the knife to the skull. As a paramedic. Mm -hmm. I do know a lot about anatomy and physiology. First off, it's very difficult to really honestly stab somebody. Oh, it yeah. takes a lot of force. 
Stabbing somebody through the skull to yeah. the hilt. About 99% of stab wounds <laughs> to the skull just deflect off the skull. Right. right. Because, the, believe it or not, you're, 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 the watermelon on the end of your neck is pretty well protected. Yep. I'm guessing he might have hit a fusion point, but at the same time, the amount of force that it would have taken indicates rage. Yep. Yeah. Absolute rage. Rage. Well, we he know that angry. Mark hated Euronymous by this point. So, so I, mean, I can absolutely see why the rage is there. But I'm that, just trying to pick to me, what movie it is. I'm just going down the list. <laughs> to me, that's to me that's not a self defense. Yeah. Reaction. He's not going there because you know, or he's not he's not doing this because at this point he's just you know he's trying to protect himself. No. No, and, and that plus all the testimony, plus the, the second accomplice, all of this blows all the claims of the murder being in self-defense or not premeditated mm. completely out of the water. So Euronymous's body was found the next morning by a neighbor, and the investigation into his murder began in earnest. Uh, the first avenue of who to interview came from contact information from Euronymous's clients from Death Like Silence Productions, mm. and within a few days, police were sitting down to talk with various <laughs> black metal musicians and fans and trying to untangle the web of fuckery that led to Euronymous's murder. I can hear the police's eyes rolling through time. In this case, like, and your name is what? And you 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 play in what band? And you you serve who? <laughs> like, so uh, and all the word about his gruesome death had made its way around the, uh, the the scene. I mean, practically fucking instantaneously, and pretty much everybody already knew that Vart was responsible. Because they either would have suspected him anyway, or they'd already heard his ass bragging about it, nobody seemed willing to roll over on Count Grishnok. In Vark's initial interview with police, he told him that he suspected that it had been pseudo-Satanist members of the Swedish death metal scene, a feud he claimed was still very much ongoing, who had Euronymous killed because of their jealousy over the black metal scene's far more hardcore ideology. An eight-hour interview was dedicated to a 16-year-old Swedish girl named Ilsa Angel, who had been Euronymous's live-in girlfriend for a short time, who cryptically said, quote, I am quite sure that I know who killed Oystein. The murderer was jealous and wished to take over Oystein's leading position as the prince of black metal. I do not believe that Oystein was killed by Swedish Satanists. Most of the Swedes are too cowardly to ever commit a murder. But I will not reveal the name of the real killer. The black metal scene will exact its own revenge against him. Besides, if I revealed the real killer's name, my life would be in danger. End quote. She also said later in the interview, contrary to Bark's statement, that the feud with the Swedes had ended as both Euronymous and the death militers had just grown tired of it and moved on. Other interviews bore more fruit. While not directly implicating Varg by name, Samoth and Isan of Emperor both made statements about Varg and Euronymous's dispute over money and Varg's desire to be the head of the scene, and, that, and, and they knew he had gone to see Euronymous that night. The cops tracked down Blackthorn, and he immediately rolled on Varg in order to save himself from a full-on murder charge. Now, Blackthorn would be, end up being found guilty and was given an eight-year sentence for accessory to murder, of which he would serve five and a half years. Nine days after the killing, August 19, 1993, the 21-year-old Varg Vikernes was finally arrested for the murder of Oystein Erseth at his mother's home in Bergen. <laughs> at his mother's... This keeps coming up. Yeah. At his mother's home. Well, she shared his ideology. I mean, this is a this is a, a home base. A safe no, I don't mean it just Varg. Yeah. I mean it generally in the scene. Yeah, you know, well, yeah, that, that's also a wider broke thing. Early twenty dipshits. Every goddamn With, one of them, and almost all of them had wealthy parents. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite jokes in the movie is whenever they finally open the record store that 
uh, uh, Uranus's parents send him flowers. And he like has to hastily hide them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, a, yeah, exactly. like a good luck mom and dad. Yeah. Like, it's real bright, like pink and orange flowers, and this like black and white. Sword. We support what you do. Yeah, and it's like a smiley face. That's really sweet. He like like stuffs it under the counter. But it's not that far from the truth. Yeah. Did they actually send flowers? And probably not. So but, like, it, yeah, but that really encapsulates what these kids are doing. Well, I mean, like, uh, Euronymous, I, I think we mentioned this in the previous episode, Euronymous caught a bunch of shit one day because he got caught by a bunch of another of the other black metalers wearing a white sweater that his grandma had yeah, knitted exactly. for him, and he oh, got yeah. to see her that day. And he had to write, she had to write a written apology. Oh, yeah, he issued an apology. It was, yeah. it was oh, on the like, door like Martin Luther. <laughs> yes. I mean... <laughs> If, if if only Louis C.K. and and these guys could just like write out that kind of mea culpa and it'd be all over, right? Well, I I think Louis C.K. might be a little bit different than wearing a white sweater. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Maybe start with not whipping your dick out on the regular. <laughs> so in his police inter, it is so Varg after his arrest confessed that he had indeed killed Oystein Ersith. And in that police interview, Vark claimed that his stabbing of Euronymous was in self-defense after Euronymous tried to beat him and attack him with a stun gun, which Varg obnoxiously keeps referring to as, quote, an electronic shock pistol. And as... <laughs> it sounds like a fucking cue device. It yeah. is kind of a cooler way of yeah. saying it. Like, if you have to save face, like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> However... Varg, Varg. The dog found a very yeah. heavy toy, apparently. Give him that pink thing on the table. However... <laughs> So, yeah, Varg Vargd, and soon the statement of self-defense turned into a rant about Euronymous' weakness and laziness, about leftists, communism, homosexuality, Asatru, and immigrants. Prosecutors didn't buy the self-defense story and charged Varg with first-degree premeditated murder, as well as three counts of arson and the possession of illegal firearms and over 150 kilograms, that's 330 pounds, of dynamite, gelignite, ammonium nitrate, and TNT, as well as fusing and blasting caps. I need to take a moment and just acknowledge that that thing you just heard making all the noise looks like something Peter Cushing used to kill Christopher Lee in every Hammer horror film in the last fucking 70 years. Yeah, the dog is a vampire hunter. Yeah. Vinny Van Helsing. (laughs) (laughs) Mark's trial started in January of 1994 and lasted for several months, and in May of 94 he was found guilty on all charges. He would be sentenced to 21 years for the murder of Oystein Erseth. The longest sentence allowed under the Norwegian justice system for any one crime. Now, a lot of people... I, I wonder about 21 years. Mm-hmm. That seems like a, a random number. Yeah, I don't know the source of that. Now, a lot of people bring this up as a criticism of, of, of Norway's kind of social liberalism. And while I do think this one particular law is kind of pretty stupid and it can lead to under-sentencing in certain cases... The Norwegian system does allow for consecutive sentences to be served for multiple mm-hmm. crimes and for the prison system to keep you there past the 21 years if there's no sign of rehabilitation yeah. or if they believe you show significant signs of being likely to commit additional violent offenses. Yeah. Uh, Brevik is not getting out He's of jail. He's never getting out of jail. No, but their, their, uh, their recidivism rate is also much lower it's because they are actively trying to... Among the lowest in the world. Yeah, yeah. it's funny. It's kind of like... Uh, <laughs> You know, if you don't actively torture people the entire time they're in there, they don't act, uh, start hating society more it's, and more. Yeah, more. It's, it's funny how rehabilitation works versus making someone money by being incarcerated. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, and when you talk about the, the they can keep you, it's it, they hold a court where they say mm-hmm. if you haven't fixed it, we just keep you in. It's yeah. your sentence was twenty one years, but. 
if you're still fucked up, yeah. you, you're still hanging around. Yeah. Like, they don't have to yeah. let you go. It's like reverse parole. Yeah. Like, you have to, like, test out instead of test out early. Right. Now, Varg was also supposed to serve another 15 years for his other crimes combined, but he cut a deal with the prosecutors, and in return for allowing his sentences for arson and the weapons charges to be served consecutively, Varg rolled on Faust for the murder of Magna Andreas. Hey, nothing is more metal than being a stool pigeon. Yeah, no right. loyalty. Right. No loyalty among these fucks. Snitches, man. Now, Varg faced dozens yeah, of death Yeah, but they don't threats. get stitches there. Well, you definitely well, you don't get stitches because they stab you too much and you just die. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Mark faced dozens of death threats for the murder of Euronymous and for snitching on Faust. But in response, he said in a jailhouse interview, "Quote: We shall all die, and I fear it not. In a way, we are all dying. For indeed, life is a slow death. We grow old, fade away, grow weak. I say, let the weak die." Oh my God, that is. That oh, is, I'm not done. That is but every no so no no. no that, those statements themselves. <laughs> that's every fucking freshman sociology thesis yeah. ever. Oh yeah. No, I say let the weak <laughs> die. My time shall come when I am weak, as with all the others. If I am shot in the back, I'm a fool not to foresee that a sniper may lurk in the shadows behind me. If I am stabbed to death with a knife or a dagger, I am a weaker warrior than my foe. If I am poisoned, I am a fool to let my enemy near my food. If a car hits me, I am too unobservant to deserve survival. If I die of disease, it is my destiny. Alas, if anybody wants me dead, let them try. I, am a, I enjoy a good fight, and if they win, which they won't, ha, they win. So what? I'll die fighting. Reincarnation in Valhalla awaits. Eternal strife. Fun dude. <laughs> Fun fella. Wouldn't wouldn't use him as a toilet brush. This yeah. is just... Absolutely. He, he needs to meet Big Herc. <laughs> get his, right. He get his wig split. <laughs> so, Vark was sent to what amounts to a maximum security facility by Norwegian standards for the first six years of his sentence, and then he was transferred to a lower security facility in 2000. He became part of a work release program, but in 2001, Varg escaped from custody. Now, he was recaptured a few days later, and a family came forward saying that Varg, armed with a handgun, had carjacked them. However, no further evidence was found to support this allegation, and additional charges were dropped, adding no more time to Varg's sentence despite his escaping. As in Norway, if you escape from prison, you don't get any extra time. Legally speaking, he is now a free man yeah. in yeah. accordance with Norwegian law. I mean, that's how we did it for a long well, yeah, time. Yeah, much <laughs> like it was in the pre-Dillinger yeah. days in the U.S., if you escape from jail without hurting anybody in the process, the authorities took more of a, you know what, that one's on us kind of stance. You were free to go with it and add additional time. Yeah. So... Vark spent his time in jail making music, putting out three more Burzum albums from Behind Bars, which sold better than anything he made before incarceration due to the publicity of his arrest and trial, plus the Bergen's Tedenda articles. He also spent quite a lot of time being interviewed by media outlets from across Norway, Europe, and the world. He adopted a skinhead aesthetic and spent quite a lot of time reading and writing in order to self-publish a book called Vargsmar, or Varg's Speech. Ugh. Does he ever get past the 8th grade nihilistic no. Existentialism. He's Not got, really. He's, he's got I, I'm waiting for that direction. moment. He does really dive hard into the like, you know, the the white supremacy part of it. So it's just like he was selling pillows. Yeah. Instead of <laughs> instead I'm, of I'm making sure black writing, metal. I'm sure while writing Varg's speech, he was happy to exercise his mind while sitting in a very comfy chair. Yeah. Like it, it, he was in a maximum security prison. It just meant it had doors. Yeah. So. 
This was nothing short of... So Varg's speech is nothing short of a manifesto, and it became the founding document of a new group that Varg founded when behind bars called the Norwegian Heathen Front, which is a white nationalist organization whose nonsense beliefs are based around that twisted interpretation of the ideals of the Ordinorse Pantheon in very much in Varg's tradition. Now, Varg has since disavowed this group, but it still exists under a new name, which we won't give credence to, and they still use Varg's little book as their central scripture. Now, in the autumn of 2009, after serving just 15 and a half years for the murder of Euronymous, plus his other crimes, Varg Vikernes was released on parole. The prison system, citing overcrowding and underfunding as a result of government austerity measures after the 2008 economic crash, as their reason for doing so. Having been rolled on by Varg, Bard Faust Eitun was finally arrested for the murder of Magna Andreasen and quickly and proudly confessed to the crime. And in May of 1994, in a stunning act of criminal undersentencing, received only a 14-year prison sentence for the brutal act. Jesus. Now, later analysis... How many, time, how many stab wounds was 37. that? 37. 37. Later analysis has, has posited... Jesus. Uh, by legal watchdog groups that the judge who rendered the sentence in this case likely had views towards the gay community that were less than benevolent, let's say. Now, Faust had almost as many jailhouse interviews as Varg, and he kept up his endless shit-talking and the praise of his own crimes until the media blitz wore off and then began to just quietly serve out his sentence. The next injustice came when in July of 2003, Faust was released on parole after serving only nine years and three months of his already too short sentence. Now, following the arrests and trials for the two highest-profile crimes, dozens of members of the black metal scene were arrested and tried for a whole wide variety of acts, from making terroristic threats to burglary to church arson. Now, sentences would range from fines and probation to prison time, ranging from a couple of months to over six years. Now, sadly, in the case of the Sarpsborg church arson that led to the death of a firefighter, no one has ever been held responsible for that death because there's never been any credible evidence that may tie any specific individual to that fire. Authorities are almost certain that it was the black metal scene that did it, but they'll never know for sure who exactly took part. You know, I wonder if there's a good chance that uh, that it wasn't any of the any of the major characters that we're talking about. I mean, cats, they, essentially. Yeah, is that what you mean? Well, well not well, wannabes fans. Yeah. You know, the people posers. that were yeah, Friends kind of people. posters, posers, people no, that were like it's copycat. You, you mm-hmm. have you have your inner circle. You have you have Faust and Blackthorn and and Varg and and Euronymous and, and and several others, but then there's that outer circle. Yeah, I want to be I want to be a part of the inner circle, and if I burn down a church, they'll let me in. It's right. that kind of well, thing. Yeah. So so that yeah. would lead to not to not having any credible evidence of well, Varg didn't do this one, but maybe somebody that was trying to get into that dungeon. Did even beyond yeah. that because no one was getting held accountable initially. <laughs> right, I I guarantee it expanded far beyond the black metal community. Anyone looking to stir up shit and have a little bit of fun saw an opportunity here and just went for it. The sheer yeah, number and for how small the black metal community was, it's almost guaranteed there were people outside yeah. of it doing this as well. Le- leaving yeah. signs that the black metalers were yeah. here as a sort of forensic countermeasure to kind of take mm-hmm. them off your trail if you're just. A regular art. You're just a shit. That, that, that's, that's entirely a possibility. So, sadly, Norway is not the only place in the world where black metal would leave its mark in the realm of crime. The most famous case is that of a teenage cast of characters that formed the German black metal band Absurd. Formed by a trio of 17-year-olds from the Thuringian town of Sonderhausen, named Sebastian Schalschiel, 
Andreas Kirchner and Hendrik Mobus, Absurd quickly developed a reputation for vandalism, satanic baptisms, and neo-Nazi leanings after they wanted to emulate the slightly older crowd up in Norway and had heard about their goings-on through the music grapevine. During this time, they also attracted a younger hanger-on, an obnoxious, friendless 14-year-old boy named Sandro Bayer. Sandro was quickly uh, ingratiated into their little clique and appropriated their aesthetic and worldview sometimes, but he's also just living the regular life of a nerdy high school kid. After a while, the three guys in the band became somewhat fearful that Sandro was going to snitch to the local police about everything they'd been up to. And so on uh, April 30th, 1993, months even before the murder of Euronymous and on the night of Walpurgisnacht, as it happens, the trio lured Sandro into the woods, ostensibly to take part in a ritual, but they grabbed the kid, bound his wrists and ankles, and they badly beat him. However, Hendrik Mobus decided that it wasn't enough to scare the 15-year-old boy, and he strangled him with an extension cord that he brought expressly for that purpose. They wrapped Sandro's body in a blanket and buried it, but his corpse was quickly discovered, and the three were arrested within days. A quick trial found all three guilty, just as the Norwegian murders were coming to light, and the normally reserved German media made a massive stink over the links between the Norwegian and Germanic scenes and their satanic links to the crimes. However, since all three were under 18 at the time of the events, they were all released on parole in 1998 after serving just four and a half years in prison. Now, Sebastian and Andreas quickly faded into obscurity, but Hendrik still had some mischief left in his pocket. Sought out for arrest after giving a Nazi salute on stage at a metal show and for showing signs with Nazi slogans in them in photos taken at Auschwitz, both of which are violations of his parole, Hendrik Mobus fled to what he was sure would be a safe haven for right-wing nutjobs. West, by God, Virginia. Now, taking shelter with a neo-Nazi group called the National Alliance and its founder, William Luther Pierce, who happened to be the author of the Turner Diaries, Jesus Christ. Hendrick thought he'd be safe from any extradition because he was with a bunch of folks who would lightly light up any agent sent to arrest him. But Hendrick was thrown out of the compound for stealing money from the group because you can take the Hendrick out of Germany, but you can't take the shitty Nazi dirtbag out of Hendrick. He was arrested, extradited, and sentenced to three more years for violating his parole. And since the early 2000s... He's been in and out of prison in Germany for various offenses, most of which have involved overt Nazi activity, which is illegal in Germany. Now, despite the lack of justice for the murder of Sandra Bayer, there's a coda to this story that does have some justice in it. At a black metal gig in Denmark in 2019, Hendrik Möbus was seen handing out flyers to a neo-Nazi event when somebody spotted him and a few dozen pissed-off Danish metal fans proceeded to spend the next 15 minutes beating Hendrik to within an inch of his life. Now, police in riot gear had to go in to save him. He spent several weeks in the hospital recovering from his injuries. But Danish police, however, declined to press any charges against those who had attacked him because Mobus's activities constituted, quote, justifiable provocation. Yep. I am the most anti-authoritarian person at this table. I mean, I point out authoritarianism, and, you know, I'm probably... You know, borderline anti-government. I think there should be a law that supersedes every constitution on the planet, and it should come from The Hague. It should always be legal to punch a fucking Nazi. Indiana Jones did it. He did it all the time. We just watched. It was on you guys got yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. I would say, he, punched, he a t- punched a tank off a cliff. Is <laughs> I, I, it's it, it's a virtue. It's yeah. a, I, I argue that it's a virtue because is there ever not a time when it's is is there ever time when it's not a good thing to punch a Nazi? Well, it depends. Do you work for the New York Times? Mm. 
Because no, then, then it, at least in the editorial God, department. that editorial. No, yeah. I, I mean, it, it's, it's <laughs> Depends similar. Depends on what Barry Weiss has to say Have you considered it? talking it out? Yeah. <laughs> Hate speech is inherently contradictory to free speech. Right. And therefore is not protected speech. Incitement to violence is not protected free speech. Period. By the way, I'm not inciting violence. Oh, I'm just saying punch a fucking Nazi. It doesn't count as violence. Yeah. So Germany had been home to several other crimes, including a couple of church arsons that had been suspected but not proved to have black metal links. However, in 1995, the English black metal band Cradle of Filth was attacked on stage while on tour in Cologne by a knife-wielding German black metal fan who was a member of a group known as the Satanic Gestapo. Jesus Christ. Now, no one on stage there's was a part. Lot, there's, there's a lot of so moving geeks. pieces there's in that so there's a lot to There's a lot to pull, pick yeah, apart there. There's a lot to unpack. So no one on stage was harmed as the attacker got tripped up by all the cords on the stage and fell on his face, dropping his knife, only to be immediately tackled and arrested. I mean, generally, I'm a big proponent of gaffer's tape, but in this case, I'm glad it was underutilized. Correct. Right. But so, and for the record, having seen them, that band... So, <laughs> so maybe that guy had a point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, no, no, no. It, it, I, I, I gave the description in the in in the first episode. It literally felt. It, it, it sounded like children being burned yeah. alive. Yep. That's I mean, what they're going for. I mean, yeah, that's, you, that's you, you can use those words. To, you could use those words to them to say, "This is what your music sounds like." They're like, just going to respond. Oh, with, that's good. Thanks. It's on the back of their album jacket. Yeah, yeah. das is good. <laughs> no, well, these are English yeah, guys, so it's pip pip jolly good. Yeah, so two more uh, murders in Europe could be linked to black metal in the '90s, both of which occurred in Sweden, and both of which took place on July 23rd for some reason. <laughs> In 1994, a 16-year-old girl was found beaten to death in a shallow grave, and in 1997, a 38-year-old Algerian immigrant was found beaten to death in a park in Gothenburg. The suspect in both murders, and about Satanist, didn't have any significant links to any black metal scenesters in Sweden or Norway, and wasn't even in possession of much black metal material, but he did have in his apartment just about every piece of journalism, interviews, statements, or literature from one Varg Vikernes. Speaking of Varg, let's talk about one more specific Norwegian crime story involving black metal. On April 8, 1997, a group of five Norwegian neo-Nazis who referred to themselves as the Einsatzgruppe. Oh, God. <laughs> a term with a very loaded history. You're not even trying at this yeah. point. <sighs> they were arrested in the town of Hemnes, 40 miles outside Oslo. The group had acquired bulletproof vests, military helmets, dozens of firearms, thousands of rounds of ammunition, dynamite and blasting caps and balaclavas, and about $20,000 worth of Norwegian currency. Documents found at the scene indicated a plan to attack a series of progressive politicians, bishops, and celebrities in order to facilitate the jailbreak of one particular individual who was referred to like a famous political prisoner. That individual, Varg Vikernes. The chaos of the assassination attempt was meant to keep law enforcement busy enough to open up the opportunity to bust Varg out and flee to the open arms of a group that had helped fund the acquisition of all these materials. Several chapters of the Ku Klux Klan right here in the USA. Had Varg and the group been able to get away, their plan was to travel to the United States to be sheltered by the Klan and other neo-Nazi organizations. Now, Varg's mom was also arrested, having been the one who provided the cash... (laughs) But while she didn't serve any jail, but she didn't serve any jail time because of a loophole in Norwegian law, the that says that if you're doing something that's technically not harming anybody else to help facilitate a jailbreak for your family member, you can't be held culpable. All she did was provide cash, and they never used the cash. So there's this loophole in Norwegian okay. law that says she couldn't receive a sentence. I think it's dumb, but anyway. 
The five other plotters were sentenced to six years each. However, all five fled Norway and have never returned, and as a result, the Norwegian prosecutors eventually just said fuck it and dropped the case. Jesus. So, looking beyond just Scandinavia, church arsons under mysterious circumstances occurred in several other European countries in the 1990s, including Poland, Denmark, the Netherlands, and Lithuania. But the amount of these that could provably link to actual black metal-inspired actors is in the single digits. However, black metal fans throughout Europe, and in some cases the United States, have also been found guilty of cemetery desecrations, other forms of vandalism, and called in bombing and shooting threats to various types of metal shows. Well, I mean, it, to be fair, they could end up uh, the, the 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 people that were involved in this could end, could have ended up in a Norwegian prison, mm-hmm. or the, maybe the better sentence is the fact that they're hanging out with the Ku Klux Klan, which means that they're stuck in Indiana working at an AMPM and watching late episodes of Squidbillies. So, <laughs> yeah, I can't which, imagine which the, the KKK like Squidbillies. Yeah, they might not get it. Yeah, yeah, they might think it's not. They might think that early Kyler is like super on the level. Yeah, exactly. So the United States has found itself to be the home of a series of crimes said to be inspired by black metal, mostly involving groups of teenagers who were thought to be inspired by the lyrics of black metal albums from both the European bands and American bands like Deicide and the Electric Hellfire Club. Now, generally, these were mostly one-off thrill killings in places like Eugene, Oregon, and King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. And I'm not sure these can even be counted as black metal crimes because, A, none of those involved were particularly into the aesthetic or even the world. You, uh, eh. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. What wow. The, what the, the dog. fuck just happened? Dog. I normally have a very strong constitution when it comes to terrible smells. That one just got through. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. I apologize. That's everybody. fantastic. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> so we we have just been um, we have just been attacked by a biological agent. Um, the red line has been crossed. Yeah. yeah. So are we going back to commercial here? Can you guys power through? I'm good. I'm good. Okay. I'm fine. Like I said, normally I'm okay with this. But so they, these these metals were these crimes were considered to be black metal crimes because these kids owned some of the albums or made passing references in their interrogations. Most of which is just them trying to be shitty teenage edge lords, even when they were in deep shit for murder. Now, I think a lot of the linkage is a sort of cultural leftover from the high days of the satanic panic, where pure human hate is always trying to be attributed to satanic ritual or to a love of metal music. Um, and quite a lot of these crimes took place where else but Florida. And most of these crimes aren't worth getting into the specifics, but one spree does stand out, because even though they showed only a passing fandom of extreme metal music and no overt interest in actual Satanism, their worldview and their manifesto reads like a page straight out of the Norwegian Black Circle's playbook. In April of 96, a cabal of six teenage males in Fort Myers, Florida, went on a three-week, constantly escalating crime spree that began with acts of arson against construction site trailers, then the burning of a Baptist church, and finally setting fire to an exotic bird enclosure attached to a theme restaurant, then blowing up an abandoned Coca-Cola bottling plant with rigged propane tanks. Finally, they moved on to a series of armed robberies and carjackings. Now, the group was caught on April 30th while Purgus knocked again, trying to lob cans of peaches through the windows of their high school by the band teacher, who told them to go home and to expect a visit from the school resource officer the next day. A few hours later, that same band teacher answered a knock at his front door, only to have his face blown off by a 12-gauge shotgun. The group had amassed an arsenal of weapons and explosives, and their ultimate goal was to attack their high school's upcoming graduation night party at Walt Disney World by sneaking their weapons in, stealing a bunch of large character costumes, and strolling through the park, murdering as many tourists as they could find. Jesus Christ. Now, as unlikely as this eventuality was, the group were all identified and arrested after the murder of the band teacher. 
The group, led by an 18-year-old named Kevin Foster, who was referred to by the other group members as God, had even more destructive plans that apparently included the eventual acquisition of a nuclear warhead, though, though there were no specific plans as to how this was meant to take place. What makes this group, whose mugshots resemble the reject pile for the West Side Story background actors, reads more like a, is, is more like the Norwegian scene in the manifesto that was recovered during the arrests, from which I will quote, A declaration of war, the formal introduction to the Lords of Chaos. This is not a confession. This is a claim to criminal acts committed against society by the militant anarchistic group Lords of Chaos. During the night of April 12th, Lords of Chaos began its campaign against the world. A few acts of theft and vandalism began in the night, which in a span of a few hours escalated to massive proportions. After innumerable small acts of random violence, the Lords of Chaos's night of terror took a turn in a new direction. Arson. After gleefully torching the hut, the Lords of Chaos successfully determined the response time of the fire department, which was all but disappointing. In contrast to media reports, the construction site, not the church, was destroyed next. The Lords of Chaos would like to convey the infinite amount of joy they received from watching the aforementioned Inferno. Finally, the Lords of Chaos descended upon the church. Using nothing but an ordinary cigarette lighter, your friendly neighborhood arsonist, torch trailer, and bus. Though very excited and giddy, the Lords of Chaos decided to call it a night, being very tired and dirty from a hard night's work. In conclusion, the Lords of Chaos would like to deliver a message to officials and employees of this city. We are not playing anymore. The activities of April 12 were random and spur of the moment, but the Lords of Chaos are scheming future terror nights and are planning great endeavors. Lee County is dealing with a formidable foe, with high-caliber intelligence, balls of titanium alloy, and a wicked destructive streak. Their ranks are growing, and they are developing into a well-organized militia. Anyone doubting the sheer power and connections of the Lords of Chaos should rest well that their day shall come and that the Lords of Chaos are a force to be reckoned with. Lee County has not felt pain the likes of what is to come. Be prepared for destruction of biblical proportions, for this is the coming of a new God whose fiery hand shall lay waste to the populace. The games have just begun and terror shall ensue. Sign the Lords of Chaos. Sincerely yours, XOXO, Lord's no, Chaos. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it just put me... It's, it's just so hey, you don't want me It's to the do, same thing. You don't want me to do 20-year-old South Park references, but i got to pull one out right now. Ween in the song. Lords of the Underworld. <laughs> Darkness fills my life with pain. <laughs> so thankfully... Crime is a function of black metal fandom, where membership in black metal bands has been in rapid decline since the turn of the millennium, and has been practically non-existent for the last decade. Now, this is due mostly to a complete paradigm shift in the nature of the black metal scene worldwide, and new generations of artists and fans are far more interested in the music and the aesthetic, and not interested in the extreme worldview or the desire for chaos and destruction. Well, I did hear one thing. I mentioned earlier that that I was listening to a couple of podcasts that... Um, that we're dealing with some of this stuff. And one of the things that one of the hosts mentioned that I thought was interesting is if this had been later, Mm -hmm. these assholes would have been school shooters. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. The the, plan was already to murder classmates. They just weren't doing it at school. Yeah, exactly. So this is what it's morphed into. It's not... And I find that kind of interesting because it's not so much that the 
the, the extremeness has left. Yeah. It's just that it's taken a different direction. You kick it up to the late noughts or the early 2010s, one right. of these idiots would have beaten Anders Breivik to it. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I fully yeah. believe that. Right. Now, for all of their rhetoric about how they should be thrown into dank medieval stone dungeons instead of Norway's far more modern prisons and all the tough talk they gave in interviews from either inside prison or out, it seems like the jail time served by most of the members of the black metal scene for their crimes did them a world of good. Few of them have reoffended, and at large, most members of the scene have renounced their former activities and worldviews. And we can see this particularly in the case of Fenris from Dark Throne and Until the Light Takes Us. Uh, quite a few members of the uh, formerly very homophobic scene have come out of the closet to live openly as LGBTQ people, mm-hmm. and the overall wide accept and uh, to the overall wide acceptance of the scene. Black metal has gone worldwide, and the fan base has become far more diverse and accepting, despite the darkness of the music and the aesthetic. However, there are a few notable exceptions. The first is the case of Faust. Now, despite the fact that he's since done a complete 180 on his worldview in the last couple decades, and finally expressed remorse for the murder of Magna Andreasen, the fact that he only served all of nine years and three months for a brutal hate crime killing is a miscarriage of justice on the part of the Norwegian penal system. Mm-hmm. He's never reoffended, and he's since even rejoined Emperor for a time, but this piece of shit got off really, really, really light for something so hateful. Yeah. Then there's Hellhammer from Mayhem. Who comes next in our taint parade? At a time when most of the Norwegian scene were backing off of their rhetoric after a shit ton of them went to jail, Hellhammer was doubling down, insisting that they should have gone further with the church burnings and instead focused on synagogues and mosques because those, and this is a quote from Hellhammer, quote, were more foreign and weren't for white people. He made a ton of statements in favor of Varg every time that he said something outrageous and disgusting and spent a lot of time in interviews promoting Varg's National Socialist Manifesto. So I'm not only anti-religious, but I'm especially anti-religious when it comes to people who aren't like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's nope. a fairly common vein in human yeah, history. He didn't come up with this unique. one. Yeah. <laughs> now, while in recent years... Hellhammer has backed off making these kinds of heinous statements. He still never apologized or expressed any remorse for the part he played in what went on, and he still seems to look back at the period of the church burnings and the murders with a weird kind of fondness. Well, and he's still touring with Mayhem, right? Yeah. And then, of course, there's Varg. Fucking piece of shit. Following his release from prison in 2009, Varg moved in with his French girlfriend, Marie Cachet, a woman who fell for him while he corresponded with her from prison and with whom he already had a child due to a particularly productive conjugal visit. He's released three more Burzum albums and several more ambient Electronica albums as well. He had a history and analysis of pre-Viking Age Scandinavian religious practices published, which, according to actual experts in this stuff, is 100% made up horseshit. True to his style of absolutely loving the sound of his own voice, Vark started his own YouTube channel in 2013 called Tulian Perspective, named after the infamous Tula Society the German esoteric group whose beliefs formed the foundation of the racial and occult viewpoints of the latent Nazi party. Now, the channel started as a method by which he could release the occasional music track, but it soon became the home of Varg's video blog. Now, because I love you all out there, I went to the pains of checking it out so you didn't have to. But, I didn't, so do that, but I didn't do that for this Horrific. series, because YouTube took the channel down in 2019, but when I first heard about the Norwegian black metal crimes back in, I want to say, about 2017, I wanted to see exactly what this dude sounded like, so I gritted my teeth, turned on private browsing, and I found his channel. Some of those still exist on, like, they're embedded in, like, Vimeo channels and yeah. stuff. You can still find you them. You can still find them if you want to look hard And enough. I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to post a fucking link. One, you're yes. not getting a link. And two, it's not fucking worth looking for. No, no it's, it's, it's real bad. This motherfucker drones the fuck on for 
hours. He just goes on and on and on. And given what he'd put into the world before that, it's all as dumb and heinous as you would expect. It's still the same white supremacist, anti-Semitic, homophobic nonsense behind video titles quite like The Purpose of Blonde Hair and How Big Muscles Should a Man Get? And it's all the same bullshit when he poses a question at the beginning like, quote, Is Vogue a misogynist? Let's find out. It's, it's always that fucking nonsense. It's the thesis statement, let's find out. He's big on conspiracy theory, and he's really leaning into the Alex Jones type stuff, and all the classics are in there. Although the one awful event he doesn't say was staged was the Anders Breivik attacks, even though he was mailed a copy of Breivik's manifesto from Anders Breivik himself. Jeez. Now, I can't say where he's at today, because when his channel was taken down, he really... But when his channel was taken down, he really nosed hard into the QAnon stuff. Uh, there's also a lot Shocked. of stuff, uh, but on the channel, there's also some stuff like him doomsday prepping, uh, playing with various types of swords, he really loves doing that, and working on the engine of his VW bus, and, and this dude posts these hours-long videos every day, sometimes multiple times a day. I mean, it's it's mind-numbing. Um, oh, uh, he invented a role, I forgot, he invented the a role-playing role game. game ever I was going to say, um, we no, would be remiss. Fuck, what was it called? Um... Oh, My Farad. It's called My Farad, which just stands for Mythical Fantasy Role-Playing Game. So, it's yeah, the it, dumbest shit in the world. It's like, my character wants to eat corn, therefore I must roleplay six months of growing a cornfield. Yeah, it's, it's, it takes the most tedious aspects of every RPG out there, and it just smashes them together in this world that's like a mixture of Middle-Earth and the Viking Age, and he makes it hyper-realistic. But are but, the elves like, Jews? Yeah. I mean, probably. He has it written into the literature that, 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 quite literally, the elves are attempting the construction of a worldwide government. Space laser. Yeah. Space lasers. Elf space space laser. lasers. Yeah, well, space lasers on Farmville. But, like, it, but it's, it, 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 yeah. basically, isn't that what this is? <laughs> no, this is like D&D, &D, but way worse. And, and so it's like, like it, if Stardew Valley was just anti-Semitic as fuck. It's, it's like, well, no, like, like, but here's what you have: like, if you want to make, if you want to have Krakow Farmville, but like, if you want to have leather armor, you have to raise the cattle, you have to slaughter and skin them, you have to learn how to tan the hides, you have to learn how to boil the leather to harden it, you have to learn how to shape it. All of that shit. He, it's so unbranded for a person who has so much fucking free time. Yeah. Oh, the reviews are hilarious. He built a deep state in the game, but he yeah. didn't build stores. It's it's and it's uh, the reviews are great. It's all these gamer nerds saying stuff like, "I cannot believe I actually spent money on this steaming pile of dog shit." That's pretty much the tone. Uh, anyhow, Vark now lives in France with Marie Cachet and their six kids. So maybe he doesn't have as much free time as we thought. And well, I mean, it's not like anybody will hire him. Yeah, and. He's just spending all of his parents' Nazi money. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a there's a big far right movement in France. Mm -hmm. And and sometime recently, he changed his name legally to Louis Cachet. But no, fuck that. He's still Vark. But it continues that trend of him constantly trying to bury what name himself. Is he Louis, Louis, at this Louis, point. That's Louis like Cachet. his fifth one. So you have Christine Larson Vickerness. You have Varg Vickerness. You have Count Grishnak. You have Louis Cachet. I think he's on four that we know about. So he's gotten into legal trouble twice. Uh, once for possessing illegal firearms and once for inciting racial hatred, both of which earned him probation. But he's still a free man and he's still spouting all the kinds of nonsense. One, yes, up. but there's a backstory on the inciting racial hatred. I did not bother they, to look at it because I, I didn't want to know. They investigated him and his wife because 
they had been spouting off about plans to take out different uh, targets yeah. in France. You know, as a as, as part of a right wing plot, mm-hmm. but they couldn't find any specific information on targets. Yeah, so they couldn't get him for race or for 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 terrorism. But they were they, they got, got the inciting racial hatred yeah, yeah. to to get something they on had the enough, against him. Yeah. They had enough smoke; they just didn't have the fire. Yeah, uh, but yeah, he's still spouting all the kinds of bullshit that one mm-hmm. finds on the far right corners of the internet. Uh, he, he'll be back in jail at some point, though. He can't help himself. Well, I, I'm, I'm starting to wonder. Yeah. And so thus, with the state of the black metal scene as it now stands, thankfully without that last little collection of, fucked, of fuckwits living within it, we come to the end of our story about this little group of misfit musicians that let shit get way out of hand. So we'll definitely cover some stories in the future that have the same elements to them. We're, we're going to get to the Satanic Panic eventually. We're going to get to the East Coast, West Coast rap order. I just can't wait for Mike Warnke. Yeah. But I it's, so want to take down Mike yeah. Warnke again. But, <laughs> just because yeah. I just, again, I, I, it, 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 I was in, my parents, God love them, they were in the Jesus movement. I was raised in this, I was raised in the charismatic church, and we all believed Mike Warnke's book. And then the math just uh, the started. The Satan Seller? Is that the one yeah, you're talking about? Yeah, the Satan Seller. And the math just started. It didn't, wasn't adding up. And then everybody everybody in the charismatic movement was like, whoa, wait. I mean, we're not talking about people that were, you know, believing in the in what ended up being the Satanic Panic. We kind of discovered and went, this ain't right. Yeah. Wasn't but, he saying like 750,000 people a year yeah. in the U.S. were being sacrificed by Satanists? Yep. Yeah, it was something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, we'll get into that again. Yeah. But it's going to be a while before we see another story where such a small subculture made such an outsized impact on the world around them. But as we wrap up, everything from this series serves as a helpful reminder not to take anything too seriously. Go out there. Go be... A little less Varg, and a little more Venom. And if you think you might be killed by your friend, don't answer the door in your tidy whities <laughs> I mean, at least go box. Not even the, front, least, we, not not even the go- front door of his apartment. The front door of his entire apartment building. building. I know it, it's three in the morning, but come, at, like, at least on check road, on dude. some boxer briefs, you know? Put on a robe, man. Like, <laughs> and, he's, and he's a black metal musician, so the state of... How whitey are those tidies? Yeah. I'm mean, not very much. This was this was after he like started bathing, cut his hair. No, that's, that's why true. they were on the outs. Yeah. Well, I I, I mean I, I'm I'm getting images of Dale Gribble <laughs> from King of the Hill You're when he's right. trying to seduce uh, seduce his wife. Yeah, that's actually pretty good. I don't think you're wrong. I think they're probably built the same too. Yeah, pretty much. So yeah, so that's uh, that's the story of Norwegian black metal. What a bunch of fucks! Good lord, this is what happens like before they had Reddit. Like they just they <laughs> yeah, had to be they had to be edgy and real. I no no no. I actually I I, I disagree, Kyle, because I think uh, things like Reddit and Twitter. We talk about how much of a cesspool they are, but you know what? It's an outlet. It's a release. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's also a way for these people to connect if, on a global scale. But 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 if they're if my friend Phil and I were having a conversation about this. If they're talking stupid yeah. black nerd shit on there, 
they're not shooting up a mall. Yeah, but there I, are should, no, I should, I should there say, enough, when we say black nerd, we mean black metal black nerd. Black metal, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, black metal. <laughs> but then you still have your MRA Sorry. people who get militarized off these platforms who then shoot up yeah, But they Canada. did that by... Yeah, they were doing they it They did anyway. that with 29 cent stamps in 1985. They, it, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they had, you know, they had I, Father look, Coughlin on the radio uh, and all that let's, shit. Right? Let's not forget that, uh, you know, Skokie happened, uh, Skokie, Illinois happened pre-reddit mm-hmm. it's yeah I, well i was having this debate with my friend phil who is a a far more uh, invested metal fan than i am um uh, uh would the internet have killed the black metal scene or would it have just let it get completely out of control uh, and their argument and there are arguments for both right because yeah. I mean, the I, internet I don't would, would think have been it pretty good at far-reaching. Yeah. I really don't. Well, it, it certainly would have been better at letting people know that VAR was absolutely full of shit very early on. I, I, I and, and I also make the argument that it would have completely diluted it. Mm-hmm. Probably. I also, mean, um, it would have allowed these dudes to make more money. And I think part of the reason they were so pissed off and wanted so, to fuck over societies because they couldn't get paid for doing so black metal. niche. Yeah. Well, but it's. Niche in a country of 5 million versus That's niche true. in a world of 7.5 billion people. But you can listen to it right now if you want, and people simply aren't. Yeah. Well, it's I mean, I don't, I don't blame For them. the most part, it sucks. A lot of it's just shit. Yeah. But, so yeah. So that's the, uh, the story of black metal. Man, I, don't get me wrong. I, I believe in paths to redemption, and I think a lot of those guys have walked that path. Um, you know, people like, uh, people like Fenris... People like uh, oh, who's who's the guy who was like the first one who was openly gay, who was also just mm. terrifying. Uh, Gall, yeah, Gall, that dude. And I mean, now there there are women yeah. in the black metal in mm-hmm. the black metal yeah. scene. Which, yeah, they have. I, I put some on that playlist. Yeah, which Var- and they, they aren't to cooks kill. and sex yeah. toys, right? Most were guilty of being uh, dickheads and property damage. Very few were guilty mm-hmm. of violent. Crimes. Yeah, you can come back from a little yes. bit of property damage in your early twenties. Stabbing well, I mean, somebody thirty-seven times, a little different. Thirty-seven is so many times. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, clap your point, hands thirty-seven times. You're getting the claw kind of, hands. I'm gonna need like, a break at eighteen. Right. I mean, you're getting cramps up the arm at thirty-seven. I mean, and these you're, were you're these feeling were this not in slashing wounds. These yeah. were these were st- it was Stab. a thrust. Yeah. yeah. All because. All because Magna Andreasen made Faust realize for a moment he's actually gay. I just I can't I can't prove that, but that's I, fully what I believe. I mean, you know, for, for for that and for even for Varg, that's why I brought it up earlier in the episode. That much rage. Mm-hmm. That that's what gets me. It's frightening. It's I, frightening. I, it's like what is locked in I've here. I've never been. That pissed off, yeah. and I've been super pissed off. I mean, like break skulls pissed off, but yeah. I've never been to the point where I think I could hit somebody in the chest with a knife forty times. Yeah, I will say this: like, it, it, yeah, there's there's that threshold. We definitely there's a reason we split the episodes where we did because we we saw where the threshold got crossed because all that stuff in the first episode about all most of the Satanism stuff, most of like the Lord of the Rings stuff, the the. The Norse stuff, most of that is just fun and, and dorky and listening to the way these guys would deal with each other and demand that like aesthetic purity and that you know, purity of attitude, like you can never ever laugh. Like all that stuff it's it, that is pretty, actually pretty funny. 
Right. Just watching these 20 and 21 year olds just trying to we hold We laugh at society, but we could never laugh. Actually laugh. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's the story of black metal. Um, Chris, if people want to find us out there, where can they do it? If you want to drop us a line, just hit us up uh, at trrpod at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, hit us up at podcasttrr. Instagram, we are at trrpod. And you can find us on Facebook simply by, thir- by searching Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Yep. And we are, hopefully, by the time this episode comes out, in the running for the Best of the Berg podcast for Pittsburgh Magazine. Oh, yeah. Voting ended yesterday. So watch this space. We will see what... Uh, we will see what happens. And uh, also, uh, if you would like to support the show on Patreon, you can go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod for as little as a buck a month. Early episode releases, bonus content, all sorts of fun goodies. And if you're out there and you have a product you would like to sell, if you have a small business that you own, if you are no razors. In, a creative out- yeah, if you're in a creative outlet, anything like that, get in touch with us. We'd like to talk to you. We'd like to help put the word out there about what you're up to. So, I still have the list open of the the top fifty movies of nineteen ninety three. Oh yeah, let's get over. Yeah. Let's 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 talk. Let's figure I can, that out. I think we, we can safely here. rule out Schindler's List. Yeah, pretty much. Well, unless he was really excited. About yeah, it. he was, Mark, He yeah. might have been rooting for Meta. I was yeah, Mark say, sees that as a comedy. Uh, I was going to say he might he might have turned it off before like the last fifteen minutes. Yeah. Uh, I am guessing. I am going with, and I mean, Die Hard Two is definitely up there. Uh, I'm going to go with True Romance. Ooh, yeah. yeah possible. Or Groundhog Day. The idea of the <laughs> Varg and two other black metalers sitting down to watch True Romance together is much more entertaining. How do me. you think they would feel about The Nightmare Before Christmas? Trend For movie. You think, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, is it, too, yes, is it too but, whimsical? But, 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 but see, don't forget. No, no, no. They, don't, they wouldn't like it because Jack Skellington didn't go into Christmas land and slaughter the children. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> but don't forget, Euronymous was an EDM fan, so... Yeah, but Euronymous he, wasn't the one watching the movie. Well, yeah, that's true. Oh, fuck, it could have been Demolition Man. Could have been. That movie, <laughs> that movie kicks so much ass. <laughs> I like to think it was true romance. Yeah, Adam's family. We're gonna, go, we're gonna go to bed tonight thinking it was true about romance. It's probably true romance. Hard boiled's on that list. Why did I think hard boiled came out later? Rudy came out in 1993. That would make me want to murder somebody if I had to watch that pile of bullshit. So anyway, yeah, the whole thing happened after they uh, they went and rented True Romance to try to give themselves an alibi. If they would have watched Cool Runnings, they would not have done that because they would have realized the power of friendship. That is true. God damn it. <laughs> So yeah, that's gonna wrap it for, up for us uh, this week. And y'all thought my y'all thought the Bob Crane sex cult was silly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Padre. I'm I mean, trying to find a movie in here with a horse in it so that I can I can lay up a joke, but I can't find one. Um, <laughs> all right, biscuit. You got you got twenty. <laughs> <laughs> no, that one is. I'm just trying to throw you a horse joke here, Padre, and I don't have any way to set this up. So join us next time. I'm I'm probably can open it up by telling you what we're getting up to. Uh, Starting in the next series, we're we're going back uh, to a, a multi-part deep dive. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Thanks to uh, thanks to Keith Volhop's suggestion, we are digging in to the weird, sexy, and very stinky Russian story of Grigory Rasputin, Catherine the Great, and Horsecock. <laughs> it's got everything. <laughs> the title of the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that was a that was a long road to hoe there for what we ended up yeah, with. Well, I, 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 
You were looking for a horse joke? There it is. I thought for sure there would be a period piece on here, but no. I Wow. I just... That's all you had was just saying Catherine the Great and Horse... I, yeah. Okay, I'm, it's, I'm, not gonna, even, it's not even timeline equivalent. Oh, it's just... God. This is why we have an editing suite. Yeah. So we can... We can Sorry, guys. You, you can workshop something. We'll spitball. Yeah. We'll... We'll, we'll, <laughs> well, hey... When, when I think of Russia, that's what I think of. It's, I know. it's like a Rorschach test. I know. You're really going to have to change your toe because we were talking about a very... <laughs> there is a horse cock in this story, but it's not on a horse. It's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's kind of on Rasputin. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, not anymore. Yeah, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this, oh, God. Okay, so... Uh, I don't want to end on nine minutes of horse dick jokes, so I'm, I'm going to have to settle for us ending on two minutes of horse dick jokes, and I'm going to say we'll see you next time when we talk about Rasputin. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Hold fast. <laughs>